0: Paznia, Paznia, which is, of course, Serbian for Achtung, Achtung, for all our big fans in Serbia. Hello! Eighty weeks ago, uh, this (laughs) week, the Yugoslav cabinet agreed bitterly about the request to allow German German troops to access Greece through their land. Prime Minister um, uh, Cecevic agreed on March the 25th, 1941, to join the Axis powers. Tricky decision though with the with the German army parked on your yeah, border. Yeah, Tiger tanks going, sitting straight you. Do you, him, do tiger, you mind? Well, Tiger 941. Yeah, plans. Oh, well oh, st- oh, yeah.
1: schoolboy era there. <laughs>
0: <Ooh>. <laughs> anyway, but his government was uh, overthrown within two days. That that that, that tends to happen um, mm. uh, when you mess with the Axis powers. The new leadership renounced the Yugoslav Pact with the Nazis. So two weeks later, the Germans invaded, of course.
1: Yeah, wolf well through, it, didn't they? Wolf well through it straight into Greece, bish bash bosh. Well, Dahl, you can do all your best when you hurricane, but you're not You're not staying here.
0: Uh, is it the Allies at the stage of the war where the Allies are caught with their trousers down, James? Is yeah, it that stage bit. of
1: the Tini war? teeny bit. Well, it depends where you are, doesn't it?
0: Not in the Atlantic. Well, <laughs> yes, of course, yeah. Well, welcome to We Have <laughs> making you talk with me, Al Murray, and my co-host, James Holland. Before we get into the meat and drink of the show, a word on Murray Walker, who sadly passed away this weekend. Um... Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, there were lots and lots of tributes to him over the weekend, and of course, uh, um, the photos of him in his uniform as a captain of the Scots Greys, with his, with his, um, you know, with his uh, milk bottle glasses. Yeah. Uh, and he fought. He, he commanded a Sherman tank yeah. um, uh, and fought in the Battle of bit the more than, He did a bit more than command
1: a Sherman tank. He was a captain by the end, which means he would have been second captain. He'd be basically second in command of a squadron. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's a that's a big old deal. You know, you don't you don't you don't
0: get second-in-command of a squadron, unless you're half-decent. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, he did talk about it a bit, didn't he? But but tended to sort of say, oh, that's a thing I did a long time ago, didn't he? Rather than... Yeah, I tried to I tried to interview him just literally
1: every every year and sort of put another call out. We tried to get him to Short Valley, not interested. Tried to interview him mano a mano, not interested. And the frustration was, he only lived down the road. I mean, the thing that I find amazing is that he's 97. I mean... You know, it seems only a moment ago that he was doing. You know, he was
0: such an iconic voice, wasn't he, on 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 the Grand Prix? That's certainly true, isn't it? Um, uh, and and you know, I th- the idea of him being cause, because I sort of think of him as sort of open-shirted middle-aged man, you know, yeah. barking into a microphone. Yeah. Um, and that sort of cu- curious thing of um all these sort of young blades in their in their racing cards and this sort of pot-bellied, excited enthusiast. Yeah. Which sort of starting to remind me of myself, so maybe we should move on. Um, uh...
1: Well, the other person, the other person who's very sadly passed away is Lynn McDonald, who was a great friend of mine, uh, and I'm very sad about it. I, I mean, you know, she'd been struggling in uh, her, her mind was as sharp as a tap, but her body was rather failing her. I mean, and she was in her, I think she was having ninety or ninety-one, but she was just this great force of nature. She had the most wonderful, brilliant wit, sense of humour, very sharp. And wonderful sort of wisdom and empathy. And I I think that's, you know, we really all owe owe her something in a way, because, of course, she was the pioneer of doing kind of oral history, really. You know, she was going around interviewing all these first world... I mean, she was a BBC producer, and and I think it was one of the SOM anniversaries where she got asked to do some, you know, put some programme together uh, for Radio 4, and started, you know, went off to interview some some veterans and took them back to the Somme for the first time in, you know, whatever. And um, and just got sort of hooked and, and realised that there was no one speaking for these people, that there was no one recording their voices, and that, that at this point they were in their kind of, you know, 70s, 80s, and it was, you know, trying to, trying to get it down. So she did, and then as a result of that, then wrote these pioneering books, you know, Somme, they called it um Roses of No Man's Land, and she was this incredible she had this incredible ability to just get the stories out of these people. Um and has left this absolutely incredible archive. And I've been very fortunate because a few years ago she approached me and said, Would I be interested in finishing off the war for her? She the last book she did was Spring To The Last Man, Spring, nineteen eighteen. And she's never finished the kind of final summer of the war. Um and I sort of talked to talked to Bill, my publisher and, and so on, and um you know felt, felt yeah this would, would be a really really good thing to do so i you know i've got i've got all that archive now and it's absolutely amazing because it's it's like 120 interviews with first yeah. world War veterans that've never really seen the light of day gosh yeah and letters and bullets you know pocket books with bullet holes in them and photos wow. and Endless First World War nineteen eighteen maps and you know original wow. trench maps and all the rest of it. I've got it all. And I've just got to kind of, sort of work out what to do with it. You know when to do this book, at, but I will do it at some point. But, yeah. but fascinating. But anyway, I'm, you know, so I'm very, I'm, I'm very sad that she's gone because she was great fun
0: and an amazing woman, and, um, and an important figure in the historiography of the First World War. Yeah, I
1: mean, yeah, it, really, it, it, really. And I do, re- I do remember, you know. You Know, way before I, I know things have sort of come a little bit full circle now, but I do remember saying her saying to me when I kind of first got to know, her, she said, You know, what is the one adjective that we use to describe the experience of the trenches? And I said, what, I don't know, horror. Oh, she said, horror. Exactly. And she said, That is one word that I've never heard any veteran say as an adjective of their experiences. And she said, No, that's not to say it wasn't horrible, it's just they didn't think of it as the horror of the trenches. They just, you know, she said, she made the point that you know they they didn't feel ashamed of what they're doing they didn't that in her experience there wasn't this sort of this idea, idea that it was pure horror pure horror or that they were you know lions led by donkeys or anything you know that that is just a a, con, a conceit that kind of emerged afterwards
0: that's very interesting yeah anyway so um but I'm off to her funeral but... this
1: afternoon and um it oh well, will be oh, well okay thing.
0: well send send uh, send her the we have ways uh, cruise regards well, absolutely. Send her on her way. Why not? Yeah. Send her yeah, on away. Exactly. Well, um, way. Oh, well, now, a few pieces of news. Thanks to all of you who joined us for a riotous live stream last Thursday night. Um, you doubted us when we said we would answer 20. Yes, 20 of your questions during the evening. But we made it with only a fifteen minute overrun <laughs> required. So I'm calling that ninety-nine percent successful. Um, a special thanks A special thanks to the twenty listeners who appeared on screen with us and asked their questions in front of the Baying Crowd. You're all brilliant. My favourite moment was the queue, where there were a queue of three people we're answering, <laughs> we're answering one question with two people eagerly stood by. Um yep. and what what what's also good is it is uh, you Know the sidebar chipping in and Alex Ritchie chipping in at one point, which made me go away and think about the thing which I answered quite glibly. So I've got to go and go and do some homework. Um, but um, uh, it was, to, it was terrific fun, and we're gonna do it again, but not immediately because you know, uh, one of the things I think that we've perfected or not perfected because after all, this has been like the pandemic in itself, we've stumbled through this to finally come up with a winning formula, <laughs> literally. <laughs> um, uh we won't you know we won't do it we won't do it um too often because one of the things we've tried to do is bring in a great variety of stuff um uh on the live cast I mean only this year we've done the the thing with Karina Birrell. we've had uh we oh, had that was, Hal Sosa, wasn't it? That was which was brilliant night. where we all watched a movie together and then we had Hal Sosabowski on the other day yeah. uh we did our 20 questions last week and all sorts of other stuff along the way and of course that that's that's available to um here here comes the plug that's available to you if you're a patreon uh, find us on Patreon we have ways um, but no pressure And there's an no pressure no pressure but there's an audio book running at the moment on, on there which is the uh, uh, which one are we on Chindit the Richard ride James oh, book yes. which yes I've ordered
1: it I've got it on order now
0: oh, it's an extraordinary book mm, uh, uh, really really extra- Robert Linham when we were talking about um, uh, uh, that book online said that's the best that's the best Chindit account mm. that one
1: I must still send so, you I keep forgetting to send you the diary of the, my local GP he was a Chindit
0: doctor it's really yes, you good must yeah and my friend yeah. my friend Gavin who's the guy who got me into the Chindit book because he knew Richard um via his church he wrote to me to say um Al seeing the first recording of Chindit is quite emotional for me Richard was a dear dear man a real gentleman with a keen sense of fun and a typical schoolmaster's charm um uh was destined to be a bachelor until young Rachel arrived at Haleybury. Uh, that's obviously another story. Mm-mm. He inspired me and I think it wonderful that his words are being revived. Thank you. Well, um, thanks Gavin yeah. for turning us on to the book and thanks everyone for listening to it and the comments we've had so far because it's a, it's a fascinating book and the chapter in the middle of the book where he talks about Wingate where he says, who was this man? I saw him up close. I dealt with him. What was he? What were, you know, how does a man tr- transcend his ideas? How does a man transcend his ideas possibly not working? you know, and all sorts of stuff. And it's a, uh, anyway, um, it's, a, it's a it's a fascinating read. And that is on the Patreon too. And of course, do join us uh, for more um, uh, live cast stuff on Thursday. Also, we announced last Thursday that we are inaugural We Have Ways. And this is our first inaugural We Have Ways Fest. If this one's a disaster, trust us, we'll have another first inaugural We Have Ways Festival yeah. next year. Yeah, um, yeah. A week? It's a weekend-long festival of talks, debates... Tanks, loud bangs and beers, um, which will take place over the weekend of the 17th to 19th of September at Bister Heritage. Um, what a place on... to
1: do it. What a place to do it. Uh, basically, we're going to be we're going to be ar- in and around a Second World War RAF hangar, aren't we?
0: Yeah.
1: The location I mean, the, the where the
0: Halifax in... first flew. Yeah. Yeah. Big place for Blenheims. The... The hangar has those enormous steel doors. It's, I mean, some of you I, I know from my Twitter feed. Some of you watched the Battle of Britain the weekend. It looks like the hangars in that, hmm. the ones that were the, those were at Northolt, weren't they? The ones they blew up for that movie. I thought one of them was at Duxford. Of I thought they blew up one of the ones. Was it Duxford? Did they blow on Duxford? I can't remember. Anyway, because they all they all look, those stations all look the same, so it looks like that. Yep. Um, uh, news on tickets to follow soon. Right then, a piece of correspondence we wanted to share. This came to us from Tony on Twitter. Um, Tony's description of himself on Twitter reads: "Retired Met police officer, socialist, art lover, fierce paladin of social dust justice, citizen of the world, happily married, and dog lover." What a blend! Uh, I mean, it's, it's got it all going on there. <laughs> Hi guys, I listened to your episode two one nine where you discussed the Gurkhas, and we're nearly at our third hundred episodes. You know that, James? Bloody hell! I know. Um, um, I listened to your episode 219 where you discuss the Gurkhas and have a little story that may amuse you. Hold on, hold on, no, hold, on hold on.
1: 300, that, that, that is a lot of war chat. Yeah. Mm, that's a lot. Let's,
0: when it's put like that, that makes it sound like...
1: 300 um, hours of war. War waffle.
0: 300 <laughs> hours. War
1: waffle. I mean, how many... Ciarantin. <laughs>
0: Someone will will number crunch that for us in terms of seconds, hours, minutes and seconds. Um, uh, Anyway, uh, I've never been in the military, says uh, uh, um, uh, Tony, but I did 30 years in the Met and on retirement, I went to work for the NHS. I got a job as a receptionist in an urgent care clinic in North London. In the area we cover, there's a large community of retired retired Gurkhas and their families. No day passed when we did not have a few Gilendo families coming for treatment and on the day in question... There are about five Gurkha families in the waiting room. I hope I pronounced that right. Gielandeo. I think I've pronounced that right. In the waiting room. Sounds right. There there appeared in front of me a very large, drunken, aggressive man who was demanding priority treatment for some minor ailment. He started shouting and swearing. And I'm not one to take crap off idiots. And I told him if he didn't sit down and shut up, I would call the police. To this, he decided to punch the security screen. He was suddenly surrounded by a group of five or six retired Gurkhas <laughs> who leapt on him, dragging him to the ground where they proceeded to sit on him. He was covered in Gurkhas, laughing his head. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to say, that cookery. Uh, absolutely. The police arrived and arrested him. He ended up getting tasered in the car park. Oh, this story sounds like it had a happy ending. I went to thank <laughs> the Gurkhas. And they just said, "No problem. You're a good man. Look after us, so we look after you." What lovely people wow. they are! Keep up the good work. Your podcasts are the best in business. Regards, Tony. Well, thanks, Tony. Thanks, Tony. Exactly. That's amazing. <laughs> that's, that's, what a story! I, I would have
1: done something to see that. I've got to say. <laughs> right,
0: so uh, we're going to do some questions again, Jim. Oh, oh yeah, I'm but hold on, hold for... on,
1: oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, yeah. Because yeah, 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 I've been busy this weekend. Because I've been doing, I've been doing Operation Blackcock in the snow, <sighs> January. Late late mid mid to late January nineteen forty-five, you know, clearing the Heinsberg Triangle. Jesus, what um what a miserable experience that must have been. You know, freezing, freezing, freezing. Snow everywhere. Then just as they launch it, it rains, and there's a massive thaw, turns into Quagmar, just at the point where they need to sort of get across a little babbling brook. Finally get across it, having bridged it, all the rest of it. Um and then suddenly, that stops raining. The temperature drops again, and it all freezes up again. And, and so just utterly miserable.
0: It's Waldfeucht, Heinsberg, Montfort, yes. all those, all those places. Yes. Echt. Yes.
1: And you're you you're in
0: you're in, Ge- you're in Germany. You're in Germany. So, so in theory, the Germans are going to fight that a little bit more diffi- difficultly, aren't they? Yep. Um. Uh. Yeah. I mean, it's. So it's check quite, this out. Is
1: that okay. So, 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 and the final. Th- final push towards Heinsberg, the tanks have to go across a sort of 800 yards open ground. And they know that in the... You know, Heinsberg has been completely destroyed the previous November. There's no one living in it. It's it's like a post-apocalyptic hellhole. Uh, But but there are a handful of SP guns there, so Stugs and and the like, and anti-tank guns, Nebelwerfers, mortars, machine gun posts, you know, usual kind of crap. Uh, uh, And so... It's, it's it's potentially problematic getting across this open ground there's no way around it infantry kind of it's snow um th- th- their kangaroos and weasels don't really work in this particular circumstances so the tanks have got to take the lead first one um first troop goes over lead tank bam gets hit um the driver has the wherewithal to keep driving even though the tank is burning um a- another kind of 30 40 yards so that he can get behind a little bit of cover before they bail out. He's wounded. His lap gunner's wounded. He still manages to get out of his hatch. They then dive for cover, and once they've got there, they then realize he then realises that his lap gunner is still struggling to get out of the burning tank. So he then clambers back, even though he's wounded, pulls him out, gets away, and manages to kind of start staggering back towards the RAP. At that point, the second troop appears... And a guy called Peter Mellows is the troop commander, and he sees Trooper Knight straggling in a really bad way. He's walking wounded, but he's a, you know he looks like he's absolutely on his last legs. So he pauses in the tank, gets down to him, gives him a shot of morphine, and they put him on the bank of the back of the tank. They then trundle on towards the you know the final kind of furlong towards Heinsberg, and are then hit, in turn, and have to bail out. So they all bail out. The tank then gets on fire and they all dive behind a kind of pile of potatoes. And then he realises that poor old Trooper Knight is still strapped to the back of the tank. So he then has to go back and rescue him. So he jumps onto the back of the tank. Suddenly mortars are kind of landing all around them. But fortunately, it's it's really deep snow. So they're kind of, you know, they're, they're not quite as bad as they might normally be and he can't get Trooper Knight off, and he realises that the belt of his oversuit, his pixie suit, is getting caught on something. The flames are kind of sort of licking out of the uh, out of the turret by this point. Manages to get him off. Trooper Knight is by this point unconscious. Gets behind the, the potato stat as the kind of spurts of machine gun bullets of snow are kind of following him. I mean, I was just reading about this and just thinking, holy moly, you know, again, it's those little incidents that, are in no history book, no one remembers, <laughs> absolutely
0: kind of no real consequence to the outcome of the battle.
1: Well, but what well, a lot of drama in that
0: little moment! Well, Pete, Peter White's uh, with the jocks account of um, of their action in in uh, Black Hawk, there's a uh, um, it, it's quite extraordinary what what happens to them is they get caught, he, he they go up at night and uh, and it, they keep their axis keeps changing of course because they' they're
1: they're, 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 they're they're in the center of the line and black yeah
0: and yeah and the, yeah, and the axis then. keeps changing depending on which bit which bit of the advance works out so one minute they one minute they're, they're going to be tacking north to somewhere and then they're told no, no you're going south the Scott uh, and the Royal yes. Scots are to your are to your north and you' you're, right. you're going to catch up with them and they don't and what happens there's this extraordinary day a, a, a play there's a farm called klosterhof and they go up at night and they dig in as best they can just before dawn. Having seen a party of Germans come at them, yep. they decide, that, and, they, and, and he call it, the company commander comes up and he says to his company commander, should we fire on these Germans? I think, well, maybe they're maybe not. Maybe they've seen us and they're going to withdraw too. Firing on them now, we'll hit them hard, but they'll probably do a lot of damage too. And our job is to get to the start line to be available to the attack. Rather than get rather than get into any trouble now, so they decide not to not White decides cause basically calls his platoon off, right? And they dig in on the side of a hill that night, and the, they dig 18 inches in. It's freezing water, right? So they can only really dig 18 inch scrapes in the yep. ground. There's no slit trenches because it's impossible. They wake th- th- when it comes to light. They realise they're being overlooked by a farmhouse. And, uh, well, they're, they're, they're on a reverse slope with it visible to a farmhouse, right? So they think they've dug in and they've done themselves a big favour, but they actually haven't. And the company HQ is at the is, is at, uh, at the bottom of this place that's overlooked with some with with trees. And the company HQ's dug in by these trees. So the German, it, they realise the, the farmhouse is an OP. It's got at least five MG, half dozen MG42s in it or whatever. And there's a shed and there's forward positions. And so basically... Any movement, they're fired on, and they're mortared all day, right? And there's a big crater that is forward section in, and the forward the problem with that crater is it offers no protection from mortars because if a mortar lands in, it comes down yeah, into the crater, it gets everybody. <clears throat> so actually, you're better off lying in the 18 inch scrape in the freezing cold water. That's your best bet. Your best if bet you just lie... to
1: be nowhere near. Well, <laughs> any yeah, of it. Well, yeah. Just run away. Well,
0: uh, anyway, so so and and at one point there's a private McNaughton, I think his name is, who's in the front section. Who goes, so you know, I'm it's just me, right? I'm the only survivor. So they caught, they, they say, all right, make a run for it, mate. And he runs back down to White's position. The whole of the forward section have been killed or injured, wiped out. So he makes a run for it, and you know, bullets, all this sort of massive yeah. gunfire as he makes his way down. He gets down, and it's all sort of like Christ. Anyway. They get a pit. They manage to get a pit to, to a pit bomb onto a barn, which the Germans are, they can see Germans running backwards and forwards at the door of this barn. So they get a Piat bomb onto that, and the and the and they make a big decision about that. And this is what's interesting. He goes, it would only leave us with five bombs, you know. So is this worth doing? Do, you know, we we know we can. We, we know the guy's a good pit gunner. He'll hit the he'll hit the barn and he'll not keep the Germans out of uh, action or or shut them down on that. Sight, but then we'll only have five pit bombs and if there's a if a tank comes down the road um then we're really in trouble right but they decide they do it anyway and they suppress the that bit anyway then he gets a message and then he says they're lying all in this stuff all day in this situation all day and he gets a he gets a message sort of after and he's he says the only thing that's going to stop this is nightfall or uh, you know the only thing that's going to stop this is nightfall or us all being killed and they keep they keep asking for um, artillery to suppress the cluster farm and the artillery's busy on some other fire task, so it's not going to happen. They ask for smoke at least, so they can, um, uh, you know, sort out their positions and regroup. Yeah, and they get sent, they get sent smoke, and in that are able to do that. But basically, they start running out of ammunition in returning the German fire. So then he gets a call from his company HQ: "Please come to the company HQ right now." But 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 a completely sort of unvarnished message. So things all right then. And he tells this story of, so I took off all the surplus equipment I could. And as I did it, I looked at my hands and thought to myself, "Is I had to blot from my mind the thought, this is the last thing my hands will ever do. Right? Wow. And he decides to leave his small pack on because wriggling around to take the small pack off is too much movement. It would attract too much fire. Right? He'll have to sit up to do it. So he runs for it. And he says to the Sergeant Dickinson, he says... uh, I'll, I'll let you know what's going on when I get back. And then thinks to himself, oh, I'm, I'm not coming back. Right? Right. Gets up and runs and uh, trips over or something. And everyone thinks he's been killed. And get, gets up and runs again. Gets to the company HQ where they dug in under some trees. And the problem is, is the trees have caused the mortar bombs to air burst. So the mm. b- mortar bombs hit the trees and everyone in company HQ is killed or injured. Jesus. And and he says, "We well, we're all right." It turns out the eighteen-inch scrape in freezing water is better than the than where they dug in because because what happens is the mortars go into the mud and they don't and they detonate in the mud and they don't do us that much harm. Hmm. So he then he then gets help, get, manages, and everyone's everyone's. He says everyone's bomb happy, so he manages to shakes get someone to get his act together to go as a runner down to battalion. To let them know what's going on, and then they get some smoke, and then they get a little bit of twenty-five pounder later on in the day, to to suppress this farmhouse. And he run, and he runs back up in the smoke. He runs back up says to Sergeant, "Well, this is what's going on. It's the most extraordinary account." And the thing is, it's the weather. It's the, the you know. There's one bit where he they all lie at the end of the day. That he lies down in the he lies down in the company HQ thing, thinking, right, I can get I can afford myself half an hour's sleep. And he lies down on this ice and he thaws the ice out and sinks into the water and so gets wetter and doesn't get any sleep. It's just like, oh, my God, how bleak it is. And then he and he's it's a very he's a very thoughtful author because he writes about, you know, they stack the go They go out and they collect the dead and they stack the dead up. And when they go when they go looking for the dead, they find a bloke in the forward crater who's actually been who's actually not been killed, has been left for dead yeah and he's just saying please don't leave me over and over again so they rescue him they get him down to they get him down to company hq then back to battalion and the whole time he's saying please don't leave me it's the most extraordinary account and it is this thing of weather um daylight how much daylight there is so they, they're basically desperate for it to get dark because then it'll stop Yep. Yeah. you know even though the germans might because there's Daylight hours are so short, the Germans might counter-attack, but even then they need to short their lines and they want the mortaring to stop. It's the most extraordinary account, and it's Blackcock. It's exactly this. Yeah, well, and you... I mean, it,
1: it is, it's is—it's—it's just a horror story. It really, really is. I mean, Peter Mellows, this guy I just mentioned beforehand, you know, he so they're, they're, they're then told to kind of put a troop out on picket in one of the villages they've captured in case there's a counter-attack. And so he's got his tanks, and he's wandering around make sure the crews are OK and everything, and he can hear... Lots of wounded infantry crying out and stretcher bearers. You can sort of, fa- it's really dark, but he can sort of faintly see, and every so often a shell blast, and you just see this little flickering light, and you see the silhouettes of the stretcher bearers moving around. And he thinks they're just picking them all up. And next morning, he realises that they've picked up only some of them, and all yeah. the rest of them are just frozen to death. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. it's horrible. You just can't believe it. But, but. I mean, we should probably take a break, shouldn't we? Well, but, but a the bit, other thing, yeah, We I'll, should take yeah.
0: a break, but they go up. They, one of the part of this advance, when they go up, they do it to the light of a burning crocodile. So you know, yeah, things yeah, are, yeah, things but are I mean, pretty bad. Like, oh, we're gonna yeah. we're gonna take a very short break because we've done our thing of digressing ourselves, um, uh, and we'll be back in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland, of course. And uh, you, what yep. you un- what you had there was we were trying to clear the Heinsberg Triangle in five minutes, and of course it took us longer than we thought. Well, we did it about about eleven, didn't we? I mean, that's all right.
1: Um, <laughs> but actually, I haven't just been doing Operation Blackcock this weekend because um, ah. when, I, when I finish my uh, my Sherwood Rangers book, I've then got to finish off my series of twelve Ladybird experts on the Second World oh, War. Oh yeah, I've got two more to do. The one which is the kind of final bit, you know, sort of after D Day to the end of the war. Um, so all this stuff is very useful. Um, but the other one is the end of the war in uh, against Japan. So I've been yes. kind of and and I have always just felt I don't really know much about submarine warfare in 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 the Pacific. And now I know a little bit more and frankly I'm absolutely gobsmacked. I mean what a campaign and why don't we know about it? And and you know what are these submarines that the Americans are using and the British are using? I mean they're they're big old boys capable of, you know, 75 days out at sea. You know that that can fire 24 torpedoes. You know they 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 can operate at twenty one knots on the surface, about nine under, which which makes them markedly superior to the sevens and nines that the um, that the uh, Kriegsmarine used to have in the Atlantic. And what is really amazing is just how much shipping they're sinking, but specifically.
0: How many Japanese soldiers they're killing in the process? Well, yeah, you sent me these figures this morning, and um, and I read through them, and you know, okay, ninety. There's this, and it's it follows an Allied curve as well. where there's a a year where they they haven't really worked it out yet, because after all, they've only been doing it that year. I mean, so much of. You know, it's it, 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 in a way it reminds me. You, these numbers remind me of the strategic bombing campaign, where you have got like a couple yeah. of years, yeah, three years, where ah, I can't. We've we kind of nearly got the tech ready, but we don't really know how to apply yep. it. We also haven't figured out what the task is yet. The, uh, the, the, the we don't really know what the enemy are about or where the, where their where their points are that we should hit them. And then suddenly, it, it all comes into view, and it turns out to be you know they've figured it out. They've learned the lessons. They've got their, they've got the you know. I hate this expression. They got they got their ducks in a row, and the and it suddenly yields colossal benefit. Yeah, to them, it, was, to it, them it just was suddenly a, as all a comes combater. together, doesn't it? It comes yeah. together
1: because you've got you've got this problem with the torpedoes. The Mark fourteen torpedoes aren't very effective. They keep sort of detonating before they should do, and they they go to run too deep, and there's all those issues. Then you've got the problem that you've, you've just your commanders. They just haven't got any combat experience, and they're not aggressive enough, and they're just there. Just isn't that that body of experience to kind of spread through it and the third thing is you haven't got the intelligence but by by kind of sort of you know second half of 1943 that's all coming together suddenly you've got some experienced guys suddenly you you know you've got them breaking the, the, the Japanese naval codes you know I mean we always talk about um, a lot of course and, and rightly so about Bletchley Park but you're forgetting all the kind of female cryptanalysts that the Americans have you know uh, and doing all that work against the Japanese you know which is a sort of yeah shouldn't really be forgotten um, and and you've got this, suddenly you've got this body of really super aggressive um, commanders um, who know what they're about. And the combination of that is absolutely electric. I mean, you know, big, big, big numbers. I mean, 2,000 plus Japanese merchant vessels sunk by the U, uh, by the US Navy alone, and that doesn't include the Royal Navy of course, and, and Australians and all the rest of it. Um, and then 611 Imperial Japanese Navy warships. I mean, that's that's, that's a lot. But but it's the number of personnel killed because, of course, well, well, you know, well, when, when we're a... talking, because we've talked a lot, haven't we, about, about the Allies, Western Allies in Europe and, and Mediterranean, and Middle East having to do amphibious operations because you're coming from the United States, you're coming from Britain, you know, you're coming from Australia, wherever. It just is an amphibious thing, bottom line. the Japan And the Germans don't have to worry about this and the Soviet Union don't have to worry about this. But boy, do the Japanese have to worry about this. And, and the point is, is up until this is the, the other st- statistic that I thought was absolutely amazing. This is not until ni- until 1944. Only 6.5 percent of the Japanese army is involved in the Pacific. So the, the rest, rest of, are in Manchuria, in, China, in Manchuria, and Southeast China. Asia, and Malaysia, yeah. and Burma, and all the rest of it. Yeah, you know that's where you've got big numbers. Yeah. Whereas obviously,
0: and obviously, there, you're, you're limited by space, of course. You know, because there's only so many but, people you've you well, can yeah, fit but that's the Guadal bit. Canal. But, but that's the bit you have to resupply by sea. That's where you suddenly you're offering right. a vulnerability to the Americans. Yeah,
1: yeah, and they lose a hundred
0: and seventy six thousand men. Soldiers are killed at sea. I know. You see, this was when 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 you sent me these figures this morning. I was really, oh, okay, right, that many. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, okay. So they're putting it together, and uh, and that was the that was the that number was the one that made me say actually, uh, uh, admit uh, blasphemy and profanity. Um, all in one go because that's what that's 10 divisions yeah isn't it something like that yeah i mean it's 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 it's, it's an incredible amount of uh, of soldiers that and uh, it's an entire army it's an entire army. And the thing is, you know, because very often, one, I think one of, the reasons, one of the reasons this doesn't get looked at is you think, well, it's not happening on a battlefield. It's, it, and we've talked about this before, you know, with yeah. uh, Philip's Pace and O'Brien. Oh, the battlefield looks like the place where the action is and all that. that. That, if there's an entire army absent from a battlefield, that is a battlefield effect, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. M- m- more, 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 You know, a completely... In the same way that um, lots of German soldiers in Norway... Tied up because they think Norway's going to be invaded is a battlefield effect. Isn't it? Um yeah. Because, yeah. Because, literally because they're absent from a battlefield. Yes. I mean, no, no two ways, yeah. no two ways about it. You haven't got to fight that whole Japanese army with your arm. One of your well, three of your armies um, would need to take, you know, if the three to one yep. thing applies on yep. a battlefield. But, the, the, but, but, the, but
1: check this out. So it's total incredible. Number, total number of Imperial Japanese army soldiers killed in the central Pacific. Pacific Drive. So this includes the Marianas, Iwo Jima, the Marshalls, and the Gilberts. 91,667. In that same period, United States Navy submarines alone kill at least 97,342. So just, you know, and that's not including British submarines, that's not including US Navy surface vessels or Royal Navy surface navals or Royal Australian Navy surface vessels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Just United States submarines kill at, at least, and that is that is a conservative bottom line. And what was the cost to the American submarine arm?
0: What were they losing?
1: Yeah, they were. I think they lost something like sort of fifteen subs in nineteen forty-four, something like that. But you know, in the big scheme of things, that's that's so so times. So how many have you got on a on a Baleo? Um, Class is yeah, 80 men times 15. You
0: know, in terms of pure
1: statistics, that's a pretty good return, isn't it?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, it that, but that's why sub, but that's why submarine warfare is, um, see, I think I, I, I still think a big part of the reason we don't kind of know know about this is submarine f- warfare is underhand. I'm gonna, you know, I'm, 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 I'm these aren't my value judgments. These are the value judgments applied to it. It's underhand. It's sneaky. It's um. Uh, it's lurking in the shadows. It's it's also asymmetric. You kill eighty guys on, on a submarine, as you say, can kill um, thousands of people in one it, 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 with one torpedo, and the asymmetry of it is embarrassing. Is um. It's un, It's ungentlemanly, if nothing else, and I think that's possibly why it doesn't get looked at and also it's not as exciting as a battlefield is it nothing like as no, no 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 not have the glamour it, you can't see it you
1: know you or an see... air...
0: or as exciting as an aircraft carrier and again there ain't no footage of this either um no. and uh, so much of how we <clears> view the second world war is shaped by the footage that survived so much of our impression of what the war is and how it's fought is is shaped by the footage and uh, i remember re- reading um uh Gosh, what was his name? General Michael Rose, who wrote a book called War Amongst the People in the in the early, I think it was in the late 90s, the early 2000s. He was talking about, talking about um, you know, peacekeeping in the Balkans and all that. And he said one of the, and the Iraq war, and I think he said one of the problems is is politicians, they see tanks driving about like they see Second World War footage of tanks. And they think that's a war. They think that's what a war looks like, because of the because of the pre- there's so much Second World War footage that shaped our impression of what a war is. And so there is no submarine footage. There is or there's there's scant footage. And whereas there's lots of tanks in Normandy and you know Panzers. This is also how we have the impression of the mighty German war machine because the the propaganda is still working. You know the uh, uh, Blitzkrieg propaganda lives on. And yeah, is- absolutely. And it is dis- submarine warfare. Is you know, if you're if you're if you're a surface vessel chap, submarine for warfare is entirely dodgy, isn't it? You know, it's not <laughs> yeah, a, f- it's not a fair fight, is it? But yeah, yeah. But it's the but it's
1: the job of the historian to kind of sort of reposition it, isn't it? You know, it's not just about the kind of popular narrative. It's about kind of giving giving what happened. It's it's due credibility. And, and, and oh yeah, no, I know, I know. It's amazing. I, know. I mean, you know, you sort of think. think you know, 1943 to 1944. You know, imports, Japanese commodities imports, went down from 16.4 million to 10 million. You know, almost entirely because of, of Allied well, submarines, not, of which the
0: majority well, of which were American. I mean, well, not be, not because of bombing, not because of you know, like if 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 we're looking at cost, what you know, uh, cost um, uh, benefit analysis, bombing's a complete waste of money in that. All situation. right, but but
1: say say that you know, there's a hundred. There's a hundred ocean-going, you know, um, uh, submarines in operation in the Pacific in 1944 from the U.S. Navy alone. Okay, so you know, on the basis that their are eighty, that's eight thousand men. Eight thousand men sinking, you know, effectively kind of you know two core. Yeah, and, and and reducing Japanese commodities by six and a half million tons. I mean that's a hell of a good return when you think that, you know, division is 15,000 men. Well, one absolutely. division.
0: Absolutely. But what does a, what does a Baleo class submarine cost compared to a B-29? Well, I'll be, you know, probably a bit more, I suppose, but quite a lot more, I should think. But, but, but you know what I mean? If you start getting into that, you know, or what did, what did, again, because we've, we've talked about this with the Germans, you know, if they bought more submarines. What uh, percentage of their the,
1: economy is going into, into building submarines?
0: Well, yeah, exactly, and 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 if they if, if the Germans had built more submarines, they'd have had a more effective battle at the Atlantic. You know, especially if you, they'd had yeah, them yeah. for the happy time, you know. But if the Americans had built more submarines, and not bothered with an atomic bomb, would they have beat the Japanese? You, you know what I mean? If, because we're always we're always mm-hmm. looking. There's a lot of a lot of a lot of what if center on what if the um Jap- the Germans had done things differently. How the war? Well, what if the Allies had done things differently? What if they'd gone? You know what? Sub warfare is how we beat the Japanese, um, uh, in the Pacific. And then in the Far East, we've got to beat them with something else. Or if the, you know, you you know what I mean? If the Americans have decided actually Burma's where we fight the Japanese for decisive battle. Yep. And reinforce the British effort. The Japanese wouldn't have been able to resist, you know. You I don't know, I mean? know. I just, I,
1: yeah, absolutely. But it also made me think. You know, what is it? You know, we know quite a lot about the experience of U-boats from Das Boot, from from various memoirs, from Teddy Suren, from Eric Top, from you know, Gunter Preen, you know, Kretschmer. All these guys. You know, they're, they're kind of, you know, to anyone who knows sort of a little bit about the Second World War, these these are kind of not unfamiliar names. And yet, you know, I I, I reckon. You know, and we're talking about the Americans here who, are, who, are, who, let's face it, are not shy about coming forward in promoting what they've done in the Second World War. Yeah, was,
0: uh, yeah, um,
1: You know, but but name me one US Navy submarine. Um, you know, I've, I've been looking them up. You know, USS Spadefish, skipper Gordon Underwood, 29 MVs, merchant vessels, three warships. Then there's a USS Tang. You know, skipper gets a Medal of Honour. For for an action, it's like where where are where are the memoirs of these guys? You know, what, you know what is there written about this stuff? I mean, I just haven't looked into it, but I was thinking, God, wouldn't that be interesting? I, I'd be fascinated to read a uh, a U.S. Navy submarine submariner's account, or indeed a Royal Navy submarine yeah, yeah, account, yeah, yeah account in the Pacific. You know, because you're dealing with a whole host of different things that you're not dealing with in the Mediterranean, like sharks and like heat and you know
0: little islands and. And massive, massive a no, uh, uh, moral quandaries a of lot,
1: sinking, and... sinking, sinking, sinking. But you know, I mean, there's a, there's a you know H.M.S. Trade Wind, for example, sinks the, the Junyo Maru. You know, and it and it's just a Japanese merchant ship. It has no other intelligence than that. It clearly is a merchant ship. It's absolutely fair game. Um, and you know, five thousand six hundred twenty POWs and Javanese slave labourers are killed as a result. You know, it's, a, it's it's the worst loss of
0: life from a single ship in the entire war against Japan. But they what they make what 120 balayos, don't they? And something like that. And you think, in terms of return, though, uh, I mean, it's it's it, as a weapon, it, especially as the Japanese aren't running a Battle of at the Atlantic-style interdiction against the submarine campaign, are they? They can't. They don't. You know, they don't have the they don't have the resources. Again, it's it, it's this. Oh gosh. I think, but I think the reason no—I think the reason it's—I think the, the 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 cultural reasons are the reasons that explain why no one talks about it, that it's it's dodgy submarine warfare. I think that's what it is. Do you think that's what it is?
1: Think I that really,
0: that's really it. I really do. I really do. I I think that that you, you know because if you if you're just number crunching the Second World War, this is one of the most decisive campaigns. You know, capital M yeah, yeah, most yeah. decisive campaigns of World War Two, forgotten most decisive campaigns of World War Two, uh, type stuff, isn't it? This, but well, it's going to feature I'm... in my
1: Ladybird book. I can tell you that for now, <laughs> with a picture by Keith Burns of a of an American sub.
0: <laughs> um, should we do a couple of questions? I tried to start one earlier, we didn't. Well,
1: we didn't... I sw- should we? I mean, I don't know.
0: Eddie Carr, Eddie Carr asks, just listening back to your landing craft podcast, you talked about oh, which, which was with um, Stephen Fisher, which was fantastic. Yeah, right, so interesting. Um, you talked about what the Allies learned from the Dieppe raid. I was just wondering, what did the Germans learn from it? <laughs> oh God! Um, that the Allies, that the British had a Churchill tank. They had a Churchill um, they tank. That. they
1: had landing craft. Um, I mean, okay. Here is a thought: What if they thought? oh, this is what they're going to be doing then. They go they're- they think they need to attack a port, you know. But they've attacked Dieppe, you know, and they're uh, and so what we can expect in the future is more attacking, um, more attacks on ports when the invasion comes. Inevitably, they'll want a port. This was a little tester, so they'll come back bigger and stronger, but it'll well, be I towards a port.
0: I wonder if this what informs the Festung policy with ports later on. Yeah, yeah.
1: So so. They read. Ra- they desperately maybe, want ports. Maybe Dieppe raid was actually a massive misdirection. No, but but from the Allied point of view, it actually wasn't all doom and gloom.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a that's a, an interesting way of looking at it, isn't it? Um, I, I,
1: I would also say suggest that they worked out that their their nester, <laughs> actually were pri- quite well placed and positioned. Yeah. So so possibly yes, so could got... also led to a little bit of complacency. That they'd got that right.
0: Yeah. 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 I, I think they would probably learned that you can't defend everywhere though, is the other thing. That you yeah. know, he who defends everything defends nothing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um uh yeah. But but I mean it it would have it would have told them that the Allies are are, <laughs> are trying to get things together in a sort of combined operations way. They'd have they'd have seen that. I mean the 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 rated in 1942, it's more than the Germans could possibly have attempted amphibiously for a start, isn't it? Mm, yeah, absolutely. They never, never at any point would have been capable of anything like that. No. No, no, no. Right. I think that's all I've got to say on that, really. <laughs> <laughs> right. David Forbes Whitehead says, "Just get stuck, just getting stuck into Sicily 43... Good man. Uh, And I always thought the big debate on British generals was between Monty and Slim. Al, you made me reconsider Monty but James, you make Alexander sound the most shrewd operator out there and vastly overlooked by historians. So who is number one?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing about Alexander is that Alexander kind of only very reluctantly wrote a memoir and he didn't write it anyway. Someone else did. Um, And, you know, sort of blowing your own trumpet was kind of anathema to him. So he just didn't get involved in all that stuff. Um, the thing about Alexander is that he's just incredibly experienced. I mean, he's the most experienced Allied Commander of the entire war. In fact, I think you could argue that he's the most experienced Commander, Land Commander of the entire war, because he's the only one to have commanded troops in battle at every single rank um, as an officer. And, you know, he's just being around the block, you know. He he's uh, unusually for a Guardsman because he was Irish Guards. Um, he commanded an Indian Army brigade in No in the Northwest Frontier in 1936. Yep. Um, he was the last man out to leave Dunkirk. Um, he oversaw the retreat across the Irrawaddy um, in 1942 and safely got the Burma Corps back into um, back into Burma. Who was then Commander in Chief of the Middle East. Um, he's also the only Allied commander to have commanded German troops in battle when he commanded the Baltic Landwehr in 1919-1920 against the Russians. So you know he's he's you know he's got it, and and his he's got a very different command style than a lot of people, which is to be um, encourage um, initiative, to encourage people to say their piece, um, to issue orders which are there which are orders, but they're also there to be discussed, and you know if there are concerns to voice them. And he was yep. very, very good at making people feel like they'd come up with good ideas. So he'd go up to someone and say, well, I think your plans are really good, ben, but I wonder whether it might be worth you just considering going around a hill just a little bit further to the north. I mean, what do you think about that? And they'd go, well, yeah, OK, I'll go by that. Um, General, I've come back and I've all Field Marshal, You know, I've come back and I've I thought about it. And what about this plan for this hill? Oh, yes, I think that would work really well. Why don't you go with that one then? And so it made them feel like
0: it was their idea, but actually it wasn't. It was his
1: um and he was very
0: good yeah, but at not I, I would the glory counterpoint to that is if my boss came and said to me had you thought about doing that slightly differently i'd probably think the boss wants me to change the plan
1: Yes, but he then would, but he would allow them you know, to kind of believe that it was their plan. I right, mean, he wouldn't okay. take any of the glory himself. I mean, the you classic what, case you know of this I is mean. the one with. Yeah, I do. But the classic case is the one with Supercharge at Alameda, where he goes up to, yeah. to Monty and says, "says, says mm, I, I like your plan very much, but I wonder whether you want to think about pushing it a little bit further north through <laughs> here." And you know, Monty does, and it's a complete success. Uh, um, so I, you know, I just, you know, and everyone says, "Well, the problem with with, with Alex was he was a bit wet," and I don't, I just don't don't see that at all you know I see someone who was you know had a very clear strategic grasp you know fantastic understanding of that all-important operational level and tactically was pretty shrewd so you know and he got on with everybody everyone liked him you know which I think is incredibly important
0: Yes, a consensual approach rather than um, uh, duffing duffing people up. And
1: and he was very charming and and very erudite and had absolutely no personal ambition whatsoever. His ambition was to do his duty and he had a very strict sense of honour and duty and all that kind of stuff. You know, which sort of seems incredibly old fashioned now, but actually, I think is incredibly attractive. Um, I mean, the thing about Slim is that Slim makes lots of mistakes in the start of the war, particularly in the war in East Africa. Um, but you know he's he's shielded from from public view out there. You know no one's really interested yep. in that, so yep. he can afford to make mistakes and learn from them. Um, you know his total kind of turnaround of 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 what he achieves, I think in uh, and that turnaround of what what was the Eastern Army which becomes 14th Army, I think is absolutely remarkable. And, and I really do think that infall is a, is a, just a. You know, immensely brilliantly fought battle, and yet again, I think he's he's very very good on that operational level. He gets that big strategic picture. You know, he knows when to kind of push and when not to. Um, and tactically, he's he he he's very very astute. I mean, I think Montgomery is a is a brilliant organizer operationally. He's fantastic. I mean, he's such a good. Uh, you know, he just understands what can be achieved and and what you need to do what you need to do. Yeah. Um. You know, tactically, I think he's probably the weakest of the three but 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 actually it it is a, to a certain extent a sort of nest of vipers and you need someone kind of banging the drum and and, and his 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 political acuity is that the right word um i yeah, think yeah. is 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 very sharp as well i mean i think he he understands what it is that 21st army group need to achieve and where britain needs to be at the end of the war you know that yeah. is something that you know and and, and the, the 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 conflict of trying to maintain as few casualties as possible whilst at the same time playing a very strong and important role in the overall allied victory in northwest europe yep those are not they're not easy easy I, requirements I mean, to keep keep going and yet i, mean, I think he pulls I, it off
0: i think i actually think he's preoccupied with that um uh once once the battle for normandy is done that that is the thing that that, that preoccupies him um And his decision making from then on is to try and mitigate, you know, the political situation as much, you know, the military situation as a reflection of the political situation. And that's a that, you know, that's why politicians don't like him as well, because he's operating on the boundaries of of, or they end up not liking him. He's operating on the fringes of what they think is their turf, you know, uh, and at the same time is You know, before, but for Normandy, is a fantastically popular figure or has great popular acclaim. And they they really don't, they don't like, they don't like the the sort of uh, attraction that Montgomery brings. I mean, I also think that's why after the war, he, he, he ends up such a tarnished figure as well, because, because he's so tangled up in that kind of decision making and makes, and and everything, and, and, because he's operating politically he's therefore vulnerable politically so his mistakes yes, yes. become become more than just a general's mistakes you know slim as you say slim stays out of all the politics of stuff he's not he's and also because he's not he's running an imperial coalition in in um in uh, uh burma so the imperial coalition basically kind of does as it's asked it still needs it still needs nudging along and handling and finagling and you've got to you've got to handle political situation in India in India as well but it's not like dealing with the Americans it's not like de- you know having churchill
1: the, breathing down your nose it's just it's, not it's, the same it's
0: got it's got none of that stuff and it's also no. not that you know you're also not outnumbered 3 to 1 um uh, by the Americans in burma you you know you're using them for the airlift yeah. but it's collaborative it's not this thing where there's th- three times as many american soldiers in Europe, delivering a political outcome in Europe. Well, I,
1: I, I am, I'm utterly convinced that. I, I mean, I, I'm utterly convinced that Market Garden was worth the stab. Um, <laughs> I'm also utterly convinced that that I don't see what else they could have really done on the on the in Northwest Europe. Both the Americans and the British, really, and Canadians. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you, you know, you've built up this highly mechanized armies. Uh, um, you know, with all its tens of thousands of vehicles. And yep. you're asking them to, you know, and that is so that you can be more manoeuvrable, that you can use steel, not flash, all of which are very, yeah. very worthy reasons. You know, these are good yep. reasons for having all those vehicles to make life easier. Yeah. And yet you're asking people to operate at a period of at a time of of the year, which mitigates mitigates against their ideal use, and and. You know, you try going across. I mean, I mean, I've just been reading literally just a, mi- a minute before we came on air a report on on Veritable. You know, which is going through the through the, the Reichswald, which is incredibly dense forest. Oh, and it gosh, says, it's it's awesome. you know, forest tracks. It only requires a handful of lo- you know, a handful of vehicles before that track is completely trashed. Now yeah. try sending over thousands of vehicles, and you've got a problem. Yeah, and and of course that is the problem. Yeah. And, and and you know you're going across incredibly flat country or very wooded country or very hilly country in the case of the Ardennes and the Tsar and and the and the, and the hart's mountains and all the rest of it i mean you know the topography of 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 the west wall of the Seafried line is absolutely a horror show to fight over in winter you know yeah. <laughs> and there's a reason why the germans have kind of sort of built their defenses where they have in the shape they have you know, there's flooding. There's forest, There's hills. There's mud. It's snow. It's freezing. You
0: know, it's just it's there's rain. But it's the boundary between Germany and France. It's the it's the physical natural boundary, which is why you have Germany. The, the and natural France.
1: boundary is the is the is the national boundary. Is actually yeah, that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and it's just you know, you try doing it. I mean, you know, I just these armchair critics, these armchair historians who kind of you know rubbish allied the allied strategy. I just think they're talking out their arse. <laughs> You know, well, let I'm on the note, fence about
0: this. <laughs> That's it for today. <laughs> no, I haven't no. finished. Uh, no, no, I uh, have finished, don't It's all there, Jim. Um, uh, on Thursday... Morning, but anyway,
1: who's number one? I don't think there is. You, uh, you can't say that. Uh, I'm sorry, no, I'm, I'm going to sit on the fence on that one. They, they all brought can't. different things to the table and I different think, circumstances.
0: And I think what actually weirdly happens is they once they've shaked, they've shaken the packet of cornflakes... You know that the, the the or whatever it is that the right people end up basically in the right place at the right time. Through the I think the, so, yeah. The shaking down the chaos, the the duds all come undone. The people who need to the people who need a bit of time to get better get better. That the hacks f- are found wanting, and basically the good people come through. Although obviously. Let's leave Tedder out of the estimation. Okay, that's it for today on Thursday morning. Ooh, uh, we'll be. Harsh. I'm a big fan of Tedder. <laughs> we can't do any more <laughs> on Thursday morning. We'll be releasing an enormously entertaining chat. James and I enjoyed with hyster- historian Frank Madonna and the actor Paul McGann. The monogram. Yeah, that was fun, himself. wasn't it? Yeah, it was absolutely God, brilliant.
1: Yeah, Evergreen, Paul McGann.
0: Absolutely. And then, then next on... week, next Tuesday, we'll be back to talk about Tedder. That's. <laughs> Then on Thursday evening we'll be live streaming at 8 30 p.m. Remember to join us via our members' site, patreon.com slash we have ways. Cheerio